You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Morning. If you're a guest with us, I just want to say thank you for coming. It's our honor that you would come and be with us on a Sunday morning. My name is Caleb Wilkinson, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be in Psalms 42 and 43 this morning. So if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere in the seat, underneath the seat in front of you. And we're going to be on page number 268. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to just give this one to you as a gift. So just, just take it. Um, also, we do a podcast every week called uh, Grace Conversations, and if you have any questions during the service, you can just text the number up here, and we'll try to address them in a podcast that comes out on Wednesday. Well, almost 200 years ago, a man named Adoniram Judson became the first missionary sent from a church in the United States, and after years of toil and hardship, he received the worst news of his life, the most heartbreaking news of his life in a letter about his wife. And it read, my dear sir, to one who has suffered so much and with such exemplary fortitude, there needs but little preface to tell a tale of distress. It were cruel indeed to torture you with doubt and suspense. To sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words, Mrs. Judson is no more. Nancy, his wife, was dead. And over the next years, Adoniram would battle dark shadows of grief and suffering. He moved into a jungle. He isolated himself away from everyone and despaired of life. At one point, shortly after he got out of the jungle, he he wrote a letter home and he said, have either of you learned the art of real communion with God? God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. In his pain, Adoniram believed God. He felt like God had abandoned him. This same God that he loved so much that motivated him to move across the world to Burma had abandoned him. It was a long, painful journey through a river of tears out of his despair. But he eventually got out. And five years after his wife died, he wrote a letter to another missionary who had just lost her husband. You are now drinking the bitter cup whose sediments I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you've been aware of its approach, I venture to say that it is far more bitter than you expected. But don't be concerned. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rending anguish are before you, whether you will or not. Yet, take this cup with both hands and sit down at your meal. You will soon learn a secret, that there is sweetness at the bottom. Did you hear his counsel to this new widow? Take this bitter cup of suffering with both hands and drink it, because there's sweetness at the bottom. Drink it, 
expecting the sweetness. Now, you might not compare your current pain with that of Adoniram's. Maybe, maybe you didn't lose your spouse. But we all suffer. Some of us in this room are suffering greatly right now. You, you might be thinking, what possible sweetness could be at this, this cup, bottom of this cup of bitterness I'm now drinking? I don't want it. Even I reject it. And if you're not suffering now, Look around, because someone near you is. And if you're not suffering now, you will someday. Somehow, some way, suffering enters everyone's door. Sometimes it blindsides us. Sometimes we see it coming, but it will come. It's a universal experience in this broken world we call our address. That's likely why the largest body of content in the Psalms, just about half of it, is given in lament, where the psalmist mourns the situation he is in and the distress he is feeling. The Psalms vividly record the emotional and spiritual drama of everyone who has ever suffered. They give us lots of room to voice our cries, but the Psalms do more than that. They teach us a needed lesson. We don't know how to lament well. We've lost the art in this day and in our culture. And the Psalms instruct us how to suffer faithfully. They teach us how to lament well. They teach us how to lament with hope. Psalms 2 and 43 do just that. They work as a single unit, most likely composed as one psalm. They work together to show us how to get to the sweetness at the bottom of the bitter cup of suffering. So let's jump in. And just remember, we're not jumping into human wisdom here. We're not jumping into psychological theory or philosophy. The God who created and sustains the whole universe has spoken to us. This is God's words to us. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we first just want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting us exactly where some of us are or where we will be. Thank you for your word, Lord. It is precious. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be in here now and incline our hearts to your word and and selfish gain. We pray, Lord, open up our eyes to what's here. Give us understanding, Lord. We ask that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and that you would comfort us, Lord. Ultimately, Lord, we ask that you'd help us see you and savor you. And as we see you, Lord, we ask that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Come, Lord, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, teach us. We ask this for your glory. We ask this for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, suffering is here or suffering is coming. So how do we get to the bottom of the cup? How do we get to the sweetness at the bottom of the bitter cup of suffering? How do we lament well? God himself is showing us that the sweetness at the bottom of the cup of our lament comes through hope. This is how it works. Our expectation of God's sweet presence transforms our bitter experience of God's absence. I'll say that again. Our expectation of God's sweet presence transforms our bitter experience of God's absence. Together, these psalms, they have three stanzas, three sections with three refrains. And in the first section, we see the psalmist's experience of God's absence. Next, we see his expectation of God's sweet presence. And finally, we'll see his experience of God's presence. Though note, no circumstances will change from the beginning to the end of the psalm. So first, the psalmist's experience of God's absence. The psalmist has lost his God in his painful circumstances. It begins with one of the most vivid pictures in the entire Bible. Verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. His desire for God is like a deer's 
thirst for water. Now, a little bit of biblical history would be important here. In the Old Testament, God had promised to be with his children, but that promise meant something different for them than it does for us today. When the tabernacle was built, the glory of God filled the most holy place and made God's physical presence visible. He was present with his people everywhere, but to most fully experience his presence, you had to go to his residence, his sanctuary. And here's the problem. In verse 6, the psalmist says that he's by Mount Hermon, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's in far north Israel, far from Jerusalem. So he's been dislocated. We don't know the situation. We don't know exactly who this man is or why he's in this exile, but this is clear. He feels separated with no access to his God. So the image of the deer is perfect because a deer needs constant access to water. It's not like a camel who can go in the desert without access to water for days and days. A deer needs constant access. He's saying, when it comes to God, my soul is panting like a dry-mouthed deer longing for a sip of a cool stream. The desire doesn't describe having enough and just wanting more. It describes not having what you need. So this isn't about a God worshiper just wanting to go deeper, just wanting to become more mature and know more of God. Because of his geographical location, he feels like he's lost God, his biggest need. And humans were made to experience God's presence and his love. We need this more than we, our bodies need water. And so we ask in verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Enough is enough. When will this drought finally end? I can't go any longer without God's presence. This is a terribly bitter experience. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So this man's on a special diet. He's on a diet of tears. He's eating tears. He's drinking his own tears 24-7. He wakes up, breakfast time, tears. Lunch time, tears. Dinner time, tears. He wakes up in the middle of the night to a tear-drenched pillow. He wakes up in the morning and he hits repeats. This is the bitter experience and it's not short. This is days, this is weeks, this is months, maybe years. And others are intensifying his pain with their accusations disguised as questions. Where's your God? Where is he? I don't see him. Where is he? Where is he? And his memory intensifies his pain too. He remembers better days in God's presence with God's people. He he used to go to the sanctuary and experience the joy of encountering God with God's people. He knows this God well and thus he knows what is he's missing. So his memory is leaving this vast hole in his soul, so big that his soul is pouring out of him. Uh, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So just imagine a cup of water. Imagine if I took this and just, just drained it. That's what's happening to his soul. He's greatly 
afflicted. He's describing depression, taking him down. He's on the verge of unrelenting despair. But look, somehow, somehow he doesn't yield. He resists being captured completely. He questions himself in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. So in the midst of his pain, he challenges himself. He challenges his very real pain and his very painful experience of God's perceived absence. He's not minimizing his pain, but in his pain, he urges himself to hope, to envision a time when he will experience the Lord's presence again, to look past his bitter circumstances to the bottom of the cup. He expects he will, despite this bitter experience, this will pass. He will return to God. God will return him in worship. So what's he doing here? He's injecting hope into his laments. Listen, biblical hope is not the same as optimism. It's not like saying, well, I hope tomorrow on my commute there's not much traffic on the tollway. It's not that. It's not some kind of pop psychology trick to try to make yourself feel better. It's not seeing how the circumstances might or are likely to work out favorably. Biblical hope isn't based on circumstances at all. Biblical hope is focused on a person. Hope in God. And it's a confidence in that person. I shall again praise him. I'm sure of it. So the psalmist, he's trying to talk himself out of complete despair by making a decision to wait for God. And and notice this, he's not just hoping in some great, unknown, mysterious God somewhere out there. The pronouns are important. He knows this God. He's, He's hoping in my salvation and my God. He knows this God. He knows the promises of his covenant-keeping love to his people. He knows his character. He knows he's gracious. He's holy. He's merciful. He's strong. He saves. He's loyal. He's praised God in the past because he knows God. And because he knows God, he calls himself to action. Expect God, my God, to show up. So oftentimes we think of hope and lament as a binary option. So you can either hope or you can lament. If I'm hoping, I'm not lamenting. And if I'm lamenting, certainly I cannot be hoping. We view hope and lament like we view a light switch. You turn it on or it's off. There's no in between. Well, the psalmist is not trying just to turn on the lights. He's not trying to become lament free here, but to add something to his laments like lighting a candle in a dark room when the power has gone out after a big Texas storm has come through and there's no option to turn on the light. Like that, he's adding anticipation to his suffering. He's injecting the posture of waiting into his lament. So again, this is important. He's not waiting for changed circumstances. As is often the case, there's no evidence in this psalm that the circumstances are going to change. He's waiting for God, the person. He tells himself, the power is out in the middle of the night. There's no option to turn on the light. There's no generator. 
Light a candle in this dark room. Expect God. I will see his face again. I will praise him. I, will, I anticipate as bitter as this cup is right now, I will taste the sweetness of God himself at the bottom. Folks, this is what faithful suffering looks like. Hope and lament. Some of you are, are, are suffering greatly right now physically. Your body is so very broken. Maybe it was just almost impossible for you to get here this morning. You can't hang out with your friends like you used to. You can't make the Sunday morning prayer time. You can't make your small group time. In, in this, you feel cut off from Christian fellowship. And in being cut off from Christian fellowship, you feel like you're cut off from God himself. Or maybe it's grief through death or through a broken relationship or through a cross-country move. You've lost the person who stirred your relationship with God the most. And in that, you feel like you've lost God. Others of you, you've been sinned against from an enemy or a friend. You've been lied about. You've been betrayed. Maybe the person who was supposed to be most loving, the one that was supposed to protect you and lead you, has neglected you. You experience God more as absent than faithfully present in this dark shadow. Oh, friends, this, this psalm is a gift to you from your compassionate God. Your suffering is real. All this makes sense to him. He knows our frame. And listen, this psalm isn't teaching you to put your lament away. Just turn on the light and embrace a naive optimism. God's calling you with feeble hands, probably with the help of others around you, to light a candle in your dark room. Don't sit down in the dark. Don't give in to unrelenting despair. One little flame at night proves there is such thing as light. So fellow sufferer, what do you find yourself waiting for? What do you find yourself hoping for? Changed circumstances? Maybe physical healing, a, a, a restored relationship, uh, maybe someone to come and replace the person who you've lost. Th- those are good things. Hear me, those are good things, and we should pray for those. God delights to give his children good things like that. But in this psalm, God is saying to you, hope in me. Maybe if you're in the category you've been sinned against, maybe you're hoping in revenge. Or you're saying things like, I'll never let them hurt me like that again. Self-preservation. Or I'm going to do this and show them how, how valuable I really am. Self, self-redemption. God's telling you, expect me. Expect to savor my presence again. Put your energy here. The sweetness you really long for is in me alone. So the next section of the psalm shows what this man's candlelit room looks like in this dark night of his soul. It's about his expectation of God's sweet presence 
in his current bitter experience. So nothing has changed in his circumstances. He's still in the same geographical location. He, he begins slightly different because of the candle seems lit, but his bitter experience hasn't changed. So we're in verse 6 now. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The wrestling match of injecting an expectation of God's sweet presence into his bitter experience has really just begun. He's right back in the depths. My soul is downcast within me. It's like a draft of wind comes through and blows the flicker of his candle out, and it seems even darker now because his eyes had adjusted to the light, so the light's out now, so it seems even darker. The candle's blown out. So, so right away, he tries lighting the candle again. Therefore, I remember you. And he's right on this. God's past faithfulness is what motivates us to have hope in him in the future. It's our hope and the future is based on his character that he's shown us in the past. This is a great strategy, but the attempt seems short-lived. He is being pummeled underneath his circumstances. Have you ever tried to light a candle outside, maybe at a birthday party or a campfire on a really windy day? It's difficult. It's, this is probably a better analogy than lighting a candle in a room. His circumstances are stronger than he is, and like the wind, he has no control over them. The wind is bigger than the little flickering flame of the lighter. His circumstances are overwhelming him like a giant waterfall, pushing him down. His footing is gone, and wave after wave is submerging him deeper and deeper and deeper. And notice the pronouns again. They are not just any random waterfalls or waves. He says, your waterfalls, your waves are what's sweeping me away. Watch this, friends. He's beginning to have hard thoughts about his God. Well, do you see the tense wrestling mats? Do you, do you see the ambivalence? It's like he keeps trying to light the fire on this cold, dark, starless night, and the wind keeps blowing it out, and he can't get the fire going. Yet it's, his faith keeps reasserting itself. In verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He knows God's character. He's believing right theology. God's loyal love has not left him. He's singing to God, My God, the God of my life, he's praying to him according to his convictions. But there's tension, there's vacillation. His convictions about God are so very different than his present bitter experience of God. So right when the fire seems lit by his good theology, it gets blown out again. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones... My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he was just singing. He was just praying to his God. But now he's addressing God directly. He's charging God with divine abandonment. Why have you forgotten me? 
It's just got even darker than it's been before. He's not just lost access to God. He feels like God is being neglectful. Like God is the one who's lost him. God's abandoned him. Look, look at the evidence. He's not yet to come to remedy the difficult situation yet. The persecuting words of his foes, they're killing him. They've gotten under his skin like poison. He says, he calls it a deadly wound in his bones. And these accusations, they're fueling his own accusations of God's absence. Watch, friends, he's really closer than ever to falling into a pit of unrelenting despair. This makes sense. As many of you know, suffering is dangerous. It exposes our hearts to temptations like they've never had before. C.S. Lewis describes this temptation well when he wrote about uh, the experience of his wife dying. He says, I don't think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real, danger is of co- the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, oh, so there's no God after all, but, oh, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Friends, if we think that God is the type of God who drowns his children underneath his waterfalls and turns his back and forgets them, if we come to hold such hard thoughts about God in our suffering, our hope is finished because we won't hope in a God we hate. So you see, the psalmist is on the dreadful edge of a dark sea of darkness, hanging on the very ledge. The light is about to be stomped out. He can't hold the lighter anymore. But his trembling fingers, they don't let go yet. They hold on to God's great grace. And this might look weak, but as John Newton says, faith is never stronger than when it's most tried. He pushes the lighter down one more time. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He was praying and singing and talking to God. He was listening to his experiences. He was listening to his enemies. He was listening to his own heart. Now he does the same thing he did before, but I think with more desperation. He takes hold of himself. He stops listening to himself and he doubles down on this self-communion exercise. He takes hold of himself and he says, self, anticipate the sweetness of his presence. He's coming. Expect God. He's coming. Do you know the most influential person in your life? Do you know who it is? It's not your friends. It's not your family. It's not your enemies. It's you. Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You're in an unending conversation with yourself. So how well are you counseling yourself? Some people in here are suffering. You're feeling 
far from God and your suffering is real, but it's because of your own sin. Now, there's no indicator in our psalm that he's experiencing suffering because of sin. No indicator whatsoever. But as many of us know, I know very well, in the midst of our sin, in the wake of our sin, we feel like God has separated himself from us, like he's left us, like he's removed himself. So are you feeling abandoned by God in your sin? Has one big sin or some small habitual sin caused you to think, God's given up on me. I'm on my own. He has made me an orphan. He's done with me. This is you. How are you counseling yourself? What are you saying to yourself in your head? I'll clean myself up. I will try harder to do good. I won't do this. I'll start a streak. And when I get a certain number of days where I'm not sinning and I'm presentable, then he'll accept me. Then I'll go to him and I'll experience his presence again. Friend, if this is you, you're not hoping in God. You're hoping in yourself. You're putting your hope in your efforts and in your goodness. The psalmist says, hope in God. Put your hope in God, nothing else. We shouldn't base our anticipation of experiencing God's presence again. We shouldn't put our hope in our ability to change ourselves, but solely on God's character. He's a holy God. Yes, he's a holy, holy God, but he's also a God who forgives. He's a God who changes hearts. He loves sinners, and he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't abandon his children when we sin. And Paul Tripp says, the door to hope is hopelessness. The door to hope is hopelessness. If this is true, you don't hope in God and hope in yourself a little. You hope in God when you're completely hopeless of yourself and everything else. So if this is you, if you're sinning and you feel like God has turned his back on you, I encourage you, take yourself by the shirt and say, self, God saves sinners. God cleans sinners like you. Wait for him. Hope in his grace and love alone and expect he will come to you. Don't give in to unrelenting despair, self. Wait for him. And when he comes, when he comes, you will praise him again. Okay, you're just preaching the gospel to yourself. Talk to yourself like this, friend. Talk to yourself. Maybe not audibly, publicly, like I just did, but, but you get it. Okay, so we're in our last section, section three in chapter 43. What's going to happen? Will the psalmist's experiences change? His, will his, I'm sorry, will his circumstances change? No. Will the fire of hope stay lit? Yes. Let's look at the next section. It's about his experience of God's presence. It's about him finding the sweetness of God in his bitter circumstances. So we heard the psalmist question and accuse God, but now we hear his first plea for help. We hear a prayer of hopelessness. Verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause and against the ungodly people. From, from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. So remember, the door to hope is, is hopelessness. He's concluded, God is my only possible source 
of protection. He is my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So you see, his circumstances haven't changed. He's still mourning. His enemies are still saying the same thing. But his experience is now seen on the backdrop of his convictions. It's still nighttime. It's still dark. The fire flickers, but it's established. There is hope in his lament, and nothing will put it out, as, as you'll see. So he continues to press God to rescue him from his distress Verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Send out your light and your truth. He's saying dispel this darkness, dispel the lies. You're my only hope. And notice that word then. It's an important word. Then I will go to the altar of God. When you come, my fortunes will turn. I won't be sitting in this cold, dark night by the fire anymore. I don't know what time it is. I don't know how near I am to the sunrise, but I know the sun is rising, and therefore I will sit in the dark by my fire and wait for it. It might seem like he is praying for his circumstances to change when he says, bring me to your holy hill. But this is actually kind of a bizarre way of saying that. Uh, light and truth aren't much of a vehicle of transportation. It's more likely he's saying, given God's light and truth coming to me here in my exile, I can enjoy the very sweetness of God's presence as I can at God's holy hill and altar. Okay, so did you see how the tone just completely changed. His expectation of God's presence in the future has transformed his bitter experience of God in the present. He's, he's enjoying him already. I will go to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise him with the lyre, O oh God, my God. So he sings the refrain again, but differently. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It sounds different because he's found the God he had lost. He's tasting the sweetness in the bitter cup. Some of you know that I moved from Arizona a couple years ago, and when I lived there, we didn't live too far from the Grand Canyon, so it was a regular thing for me to go and, and, and run it or, or, or walk down into it and, and back up, and uh, while beautiful, it was almost always awful coming out of there. It was awful because you just kept looking at the top of the rim, and you're taking these steps, and you're hot, and you're sweaty, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and the rim just doesn't seem to be lowering, and uh, you just say, am I ever going to get out of here? I don't know if I actually ever thought like, I might not get out of here. I, I did think that about some of my buddies who I've gone with. But, I, uh, but obviously, I, I made it out each time I'm here. Um, and my routine after getting out each time was to go into the town, it's about 20 minutes from the rim, and go to Wendy's and get a large chocolate frosty and just a large salty fry, extra salt. And, uh, and but it was super good after the rough time in the canyon. And one of the reasons why it was so good is because I began thinking about it as soon as the trek out began to get difficult. My anticipation of my Wendy's 
actually was changing. It, it's changed. I've, I've experienced it over and over again. It has changed my ex- awful experience of getting out of the canyon. It's still awful. I'm still a long way from the rim, still a long way from it. But it's like as I'm walking out, I'm beginning to enjoy it. I'm beginning to taste the refreshment long before I get there, hours before I could make it to the drive-thru. So in a greater way, this is what the psalmist has found. Homeward bound or not, God is his exceeding joy. His tone is different. It's as if he's saying, with surprising delight, I have found God's intimate presence here without relocating, without a change in my circumstances. I'm experiencing God now. This is shocking. It's shocking because nothing outwardly has changed, but his hope has won through. It hasn't been crushed by his lament. His hope and his lament are together now. They're, they're complementary. So for many in this room, tomorrow begins another grueling work week. Do you lament your workplace? Maybe you're surrounded by people who don't know God, or they mock and scorn God and his people and his ways. Or, or maybe you think you could be doing something more spiritual. You're having trouble sensing God's presence at work because of the type of work you do or the type of people you work with. You feel God's presence here on Sunday or at home with family worship or in small group, but during those 40 hours of week, you feel abandoned. God doesn't care about my work. He's forgotten me here. Well, friends, God doesn't want you to just suck it up and, and stop being bothered by it. He also doesn't, he, he, he wants you to lament, and he also doesn't want you to settle for this lie of a sacred secular divide where you just stop hoping that he'll meet you there. Because you, you have secular work. God, God doesn't show up there. He wants you to hope. He wants you to lament and hope. Listen, this psalm teaches you how to lament over your brokenness in your workplace. Lament isn't merely complaining. Lament is crying out to God from a place of honesty. Biblical lament is done with hope. God's telling you, in your hurt and disappointment at work, wait for me. Anticipate me showing up, yes, in this type of work. Yes, with those people. Don't put your hope in getting a promotion or getting a new job or getting new coworkers. Don't wait for different circumstances. Expect me to meet you and satisfy you here. If this is you, we, we have a growth group called Reframe that begins in September that, that, that will help you with this. So everyone's invited. But either way, expect God to meet you in your workplace and see how he will change your experience. Well, friends... I want to end with um, some bad news. If you're like me, uh, expecting God's sweet presence is going to be very difficult in your bitter experiences of his perceived absence, whether at your workplace or in your sin or the result of someone else's sin or in your physical suffering and grief. I, I think it will be so hard, none of us will actually do it. We won't hope in God for various reasons. And one is that we think we're stronger than we are. We hope in ourselves. If the, door to hopeless, if the door to hope is hopelessness, we're just not hopeless enough yet. We're, we're self-sufficient. 
We think we can dig ourselves out of despair. We think we can pretend our suffering just isn't really that bad. One way we do this is we just compare it to other people who have it worse. It's not that bad. Look at them over there. They got it way worse. I'm good. We'll, 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 we'll stuff our tears deep down and we'll, we'll stuff our hope down too. And we'll just become strong Christian stoics. Another reason expecting God's presence is going to be impossible is because many of us, including me, want changed circumstances more than we want God's presence. And if it comes, to, if it comes down to a pain-free life and a bitter, bitter cup with sweetness at the bottom, we'll take the former. Thank you. We love our comfort more than we love our God. So we'll wait for sweeter circumstances rather than expecting God's sweet presence. And if we end up waiting too long, we'll just give in to unrelenting despair. We'll choose to live a life of protesting our loss and our pain. Friends, if God, is God our really hope in life and death? Is God our only hope in life and death? Is God really better than changed circumstances? Is he himself really the sweetness at the bottom of the cup? How this psalm answers these questions makes all the difference. And the answer is an emphatic yes. Because you see, this psalm isn't primarily about you. And it's not primarily about me. It's not even primarily about the one who wrote it. The psalm is about Jesus. Jesus is the man who lived this psalm out like no one ever has. He is the son of God who chose to go away from his father's immediate presence to live in exile as a man, the man of sorrows. He lived a life where tears would be his food. His soul thirsted for God in his temptation in the wilderness. His soul was cast down within him in the garden to the point where he sweated blood. There he pleaded with the Father, if possible, let this bitter cup of suffering, your wrath, pass by me. And God the Father said, no. Jesus then went to the ultimate place of divine absence, the cross, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, unlike the psalmist, God the Father actually did abandon Jesus. And there, naked, bleeding, humiliated, in the depths of divine abandonment, he was mocked by his enemies. Where's your God now? Even there, the light of his hope in God wasn't snuffed out. Calling out with a loud voice, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He hoped in God until the end. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he live out our psalm? He did so so that we could know just how sweet his love is for us. He came, we just sang, to conquer us with kindness. You see, when he went to the cross, when he went to exile, he knew we would prefer sweet, pleasant circumstances more than him. And still, he came and chose to love us more than pleasant circumstances. Who would come to save us? Those who turned away his love, Jesus. He came to do this so that we would know that his love is far sweeter. It's better than life. It's far sweeter than changed circumstances. He came so that we would want to experience it even more than our changed circumstances. And he did so so that we could have a more sure hope 
than ourselves so that we could have a more confident assurance than even the psalmist that God would never abandon us because Jesus was abandoned for us already. He won't leave us no matter what. We will praise him again. Listen, if you're a Christ follower, the future is secure. It's based on a person who overcame death and went before you. What happened to Jesus is a foretaste of what will happen to all his people. He is by the Father's right side right now in fullness of joy with pleasures forevermore. He's there. Living this psalm out, Jesus took the bitter cup with both hands so that we could follow him through to the sweetness at the bottom. He himself. So Christian, no matter how far you feel from God, no matter how dark the night is right now or will get, no matter how much you hurt and lament, no matter how painful this is, don't blow out the candle of hope. In Christ, we have assurance that these dark caves of lament are really tunnels leading us to the joy of his sweet presence. Wait for a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Look back to our risen Jesus in order to look forward and keep your candle of hope lit. Expect God. Your circumstances, your bitter circumstances may never, ever change, but as you expect God's sweet presence at the bottom of your bitter cup, you will already begin to experience it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.